Hi there and welcome. You're listening to the Diving In podcast, brought to you by Virginia Seymour and Louise Jones. This podcast is part of a lifelong conversation between friends about the books we're reading and the issues they make us think about. That also goes for the movies and television we're watching and the podcasts we're currently hooked on. We might even talk about what's in the news and anything else we're diving into this week. Diving in. Hi Louise, hi everyone. Lou and I are finally recording our conversation together in the same room at what is a very tumultuous time in the world. Yeah, it is, isn't it? 2020 is really going to be a year to remember. I think for a long time we're going to be marking events and things by whether they happened pre-2020 or post-2020. Yeah, I agree. Or during 2020. Yeah. It's a defining year in so many respects. And uh, Louise and I are going to be discussing the issue of anti-racism in our next episode. Or more specifically, we're, we're going to be discussing several books on that subject. We've started reading some new books and we're trying to educate ourselves to do better. And we're looking forward to having a conversation about those books and the things that they make us reflect on. But for today, we're going to be talking about some new release contemporary Australian books that we've been reading and enjoying. So, Lou, what's the first book you've been reading? I have been reading The Spill by Imbi Neem. It came out quite recently and it was published by Penguin Viking. And look, this is not a full trigger warning, but I think this is a very fractious story and it includes the impact of alcoholism on family members. So I think I should flag that from the get-go. The Spill is a powerful story and it's a very intimate story about family. At the heart of the family and the story are two sisters, Nicole and Samantha, and the book opens in 1982 in an Australian country town. Um, there's been a car accident and a car has rolled over on the road. Oh. The three occupants of the car are Nicole, Samantha and their mother, Tina. And none of them are badly hurt and the two girls are sitting outside the town's pub waiting for their father to come and pick them up and their mother Tina is inside. But that crash and the events leading up to it sort of set in train decisions that impact upon the sisters in very different ways from that moment forward and sets them on very different paths. Gosh. And from the opening chapter, we move forward almost 30, uh, 40 years actually, and it's the day of their mother's funeral. Their father is married to wife number three and the sisters' relationship with each other is seriously fractured. The wake is at Nicole's house and Samantha has instructed the caterers to slow down the service of alcohol because of the number of career drunks, Tina's friends, who are in attendance. Wow. So this means, of course, that people don't stay very long and Nicole and Samantha are left at the end of the wake by themselves. And Nicole pulls out a jigsaw puzzle. Her mother had been very fond of jigsaw puzzles and she wants to do it in her mother's honour. And Samantha comments, well, if that's you know, mum's jigsaw puzzle, then it's likely some pieces are missing and there's no point doing it. Very symbolic. (laughs) Yes. And Nicole replies, life is like a jigsaw puzzle without all the pieces, but we still do life. 
So this sort of idea of a jigsaw with individual pieces sort of becomes a metaphor for the fabric of their family. And the, the story moves very deftly, I think, between their present and their past. So there's chapters from the perspective of Nicole and there's chapters from the perspective of Samantha. And then... Imbi, the author, has also interspersed a series of chapters which are entitled Piece Number One, 1984, Piece Number Two, 1991. And they are stories of family events like, um, you know, New Year's Eve or a 21st birthday party. So sort of significant events. Significant events. You can't can't have them with it. No. Not, not on the jigsaw puzzle. Exactly. And like the birth of a child, one of their father's weddings. And so they're essentially the pieces of their lives that they all attended. And those chapters are in the third person, which means you get the facts and you get the perspectives of both sisters. Look, I think that's a pretty ambitious way to write. And I think she's done it very cleverly. Wow. Um, you know, particularly for a debut novel. Yeah. And of, of course, the sisters leave these interactions with their own version of what happened and their own internal dialogue of what was said, you know, what was intended by words that weren't said and the assumptions that they make. And, of course, that's what we all do. We remember things differently to each other, particularly our family members. Yeah, and we bring our own baggage. We do. We sort of bring our own interpretation, our own layers, don't we, to understanding situations, particularly to family events and perhaps family conflict. And I think it's also sometimes hard to retreat from our own perspectives and to see the story from another family member's point of view. And I think she's really nailed this part of it. So it's sort of... You know, the book is essentially about their complex relationship and you really feel the weight of the hurt and the regret. So it is a sad and painful book at times, but it's also very warm and it's quite sharply funny at times. And right. It's got that sharp, comical feel to it that, you know, you get from family, yeah, don't you, yeah. family dynamics? Well, sometimes you just have to laugh because yes. things are so ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. And there were things that I liked and disliked about both sisters and I you know, as a reader, I could see both points of view. And of course, that's entirely what Imbi intends, I'm sure. But we're rooting for them. We want them to resolve their differences and to see the situation from the other person's perspective, the other sister's perspective. It's a very well-written book. It won the Penguin Literary Prize, which is a prize awarded to uh, an unpublished manuscript of a new Australian author in the area of literary fiction. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah, that prize tries to sort of find new Australian authors. This is going to resonate very strongly for some readers who are sisters. Yeah. I did find it quite confronting at times, to be honest, but it's a great book. It's The Spill by Imbi Neem. And is The Spill the accident or well, is it I think a it's spilling your jigsaw puzzles on so the table? many things. Okay. Yeah, and they do. The jigsaw puzzle is dropped on occasion. Okay, right. And also maybe something to do with spilling alcohol, the spill on the road. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, yeah. It's, it's... Lots yeah, of things. Yeah, lots of things. What a yeah. great time. Yeah. That sounds fantastic, Lou. Now I want to read that one as well. You do this to my TBR every time. Well, uh, you've been doing it to mine for about 30 years, Virginia. So. <laughs> so now we're going to talk about a book that we've both read, a really beautiful book. So this is Phosphorescence by Julia Baird, published, I think, Fourth Estate, which is an imprint of HarperCollins. Is that right? I think so. So Julia Baird is an Australian journalist. She's a political journalist. She's a writer and television commentator. And she's got the most stellar CV, which I think is worth talking about for a moment. Yeah. 
She began her career in journalism with the Sydney Morning Herald newspaper. She's written a lot about gender and politics throughout her career. She has a PhD from the University of Sydney. Her thesis was on women in politics. Uh, And she's also written a biography of Queen Victoria. Yep. In the early 2000s, she became the deputy editor at the Newsweek magazine in New York. And she also wrote for the New York Times. And she is back in Australia now, and we know her as the host of The Drum, yeah. which is a nightly current affairs yeah, television I love show. Drum. I do too. And look, for my part, and I'm sure you'd agree, Virginia, I find her commentary to be really intelligent and Very intelligent. And, you know, she's a very compassionate person. And I, look, I've, She's you know, divine. I've got a girl crush. Yeah, I do too. Very big girl crush. And before she did all that journalism, she took a law degree. Yes, and she I did. And I think possibly practised for a little while. Yeah, I don't there's know. stories of her photocopying in yeah. law firms. Yeah, because <laughs> you know, there's a bit of a time gap between the law degree and starting journalism. Yeah. And then in 2015, she revealed in a New York Times column that she was recovering from surgery for cancer. And then that cancer recurred in 2017. Mm. And she's come close to death three times. And in those moments and in her periods of recovery, she talks about experiencing a depth and intensity of emotions, fear, anxiety, dread, but also love and calm. And she describes the sensation of, I suppose, being surrounded by this really supportive, loving family and good friends, but then feeling completely and utterly alone. So she has had to find on many occasions the reserves to pull herself out of that dark abyss and to find light and hope and optimism. She's part of an ocean swim squad in New South Wales and they meet every morning at Manly Beach, no matter the temperature. And just after sunrise, I can know, you imagine? Just, and it would be so beautiful, yeah, it? would be it? beautiful, but I, I just oh, feel also, it yeah. cold. Yes. <laughs> and um, you don't quite know what's lurking. Well, you don't. And when you read mm. what she has seen on the ocean floor, yeah. it's fascinating. Do, I don't do, know that do, that, do. yes. <laughs> and they swim out beyond the surf break and then around a headland and they swim for about a kilometre and a half every morning. And she talks about the glow from the phytoplankton in the ocean that react to the movement of the swimmers. Yeah, um, I loved that. Those sort of light-producing chemicals that produce that shimmery phosphorescence and this glow. So hence this book, Phosphorescence, in her words, is really how to search for the light and the glow in our lives Yeah, and how to find happiness and awe and wonder and joy and look, so many other things. I'm, mm. You know, it's hard to do it justice in, introdu- in an introduction. But also how do we explain this stupid, crazy world to our children? So the book is a series of small chapters or vignettes, and I know you loved it too, Ginny. I, I really did. loved it. She writes so beautifully, so intelligently, mm. and what I loved was that you could dip into a chapter and then let the topic sit with you mm. for a while and then go back for more. Yep, I found it hard to sort of, I sort of flicked through it trying to select a few to talk about because I identified very strongly with her. She talks about the fact that she's a single mother. Yes. So when she was sick, of course, there's that added layer of fear for her two children and I really strongly related to that, having been through that. And just the way she comes to all the issues she talks about with a lot of grace and Mm. balance Mm. 
She's not preachy. She's not sort of holier than thou. She's very thoughtful and reflective. I just... And so measured, isn't very she? Very measured. Yeah. And grace is such a good word, Virginia. Yeah. yeah so yeah, much grace. Yes. I particularly loved the chapter that she called The Overview mm. Effect. And that's a section of the book where she talks a lot about how we need to have awe and wonder mm. at the universe. Within that, she talks a little bit about people who chase storms, and mm. I have never really known how that all came about. Mm. So that was fascinating to me. And then this particular chapter about the overview effect where she talks about the case of astronauts who can put their thumb up against the window of the spacecraft mm. and block out Earth completely just with their little how thumb. How incredible, isn't it? Yeah, and... Yeah how they they don't feel big in no. that moment. They feel incredibly small. Yes. And that really spoke to me because that's exactly what I do and it's what I have done in very dark times in my life. And it's given me this really strange sense of comfort. There is something very reassuring about switching your thinking around from being very consumed about your own grief or your own worries and seeing how minuscule you are. Mm. It's very humbling, isn't it? Seeing how insignificant mm. you are in the scheme of the whole mm. universe. And we are all just tiny, tiny ants mm. and our concerns are really nothing. Mm. So I love that. I have many times Googled out of space and just sat, you know, in a dark moment mm. and just I love um, videos where of a spacecraft moving through space. I just love that feeling of looking at the stars. I never and knew the that about you, Virginia. I know. <laughs> It's really comforting. It's fantastic. So I loved that one. The, another one that I particularly loved was The Activist's Attic. Yes. This chapter is an example of that amazing synchronicity where the two books you're reading both end up referring to the same thing. Mm. I love it when that happens with books. So in this case, it was the suffragette mm. movement and the people who became activists for social change, which, of course, is very relevant in this moment. Yes. So Julia talks about a decade in her 20s when she lobbied for women mm. to be allowed to be ordained into the Sydney Anglican Church. And as she says, she failed spectacularly. Mm. And she mentions that, in fact, things have gone backwards with yeah. that church and there's now a rule that women should not speak from the pulpit if a male past puberty is present. I mean, it's I just... I didn't know it that. It is gobsmacking, I know. I, I knew that it had become ultra, ultra conservative. Mm. I didn't know that there was that sort of rule of thumb. So, And the book that I'm going to talk about in a moment has suffragettes as one of the central backgrounds to the mm. story. So I found this all very relevant, particularly in light of events this week. So I mm. really loved that chapter. I think that's gorgeous. And then the third one that I, I pulled out is the one called Own Your Authority. Mm. And this chapter just made me angry. I wasn't really aware that women on Twitter are demeaned if they mention their academic qualifications. Yeah. No, that was incredible, wasn't it? Yeah. It's so, called doctorate shaming. I know. But it only happens to women. To women. I mean, the, the fact that she would have the temerity to put PhD after her, I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it? So I think she was involved in an exchange about a particular topic and someone, a male, said to her, well, what, what would you know about this? <laughs> yes. And she said... <laughs> well, know, actually... Well, I have a PhD <laughs> and this person then accused her of being an elitist snob uh. and pretentious and all sorts of things. So that then prompted her to put Dr Julia Baird yes. on her Twitter handle, which then enraged yes. more men 
who then attacked her even more and said she was insecure. (laughs) But do you think it's a peculiarly Australian thing, though? Because I'm not sure necessarily in the US that people. Or I'm thinking even of. Britain, I wouldn't have thought yeah, this would happen Yeah, I there. think it's a bit of part of our tall poppy. I think it might be. That we, the idea that, you know, you talk about your qualifications is Maybe. elitist. And but it would never happen to a man here. No. I mean, you know. We, well, you could put doctor. She could put doctor Jonathan Baird. And, yeah, no and one would bat no an eyelid. Bat an eyelid. Mm, yeah. So that was quite an eye-opener to me. And the beauty of that chapter is that she reminds us all that if we have expertise or knowledge or experience that we should use it and add Mm. our voices to the public discourse. And I I loved it for Mm. that reason. Mm. Which chapters did you love, Lou? One of my favourite chapters is Why We Need Silence. Oh, I loved that one. And, you know, that was just really resonated to me personally because I need quite a bit more silence in my life. Me too. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Ironic that we're doing a podcast. (laughs) Yeah, where we're filling filling (laughs) the silence. (laughs) And she quotes Nobel Prize winning bacteriologist Robert Koch as saying, the day will come when man will have to fight noise as inexorably as cholera and the plague. Oh, yeah, wasn't that was fantastic. It was so present. Yeah. And, of course, in this chapter, silence is not what we might imagine. It's not the absence of yes. all sound. It's the absence of sound made by human beings. Yes. And there's an acoustic ecologist in the US, Gordon Hempton, and he is known as the sound tracker. And his definition of silence is the complete absence of all audible mechanical vibrations, leaving only the sounds of nature at her most natural. And I thought this was a bit of a theme in the whole collection, didn't you? Was this sort of connection to nature through her swimming and through what she's been through? She is obviously quite attuned to nature and she interviewed Hampton and his main concern is that we're being deprived of access to nature in a way that our ancestors were not and he has walked around some of the most remote places on earth so he can track what he refers to as true natural silence and this of caused Julia to reflect on something that uh, that this is something that the uh, you know Aboriginal Australians have been doing for years. They've been living with the silence of nature for thousands of years and they have been urging us to listen to country. Yes. And she travelled to the sort of sacred ceremonial grounds in the northeast Arnhem Land in the top of Australia and she learned about... It's a word, an Aboriginal word, dadiri, and probably the closest translation or understanding that we have of that word is a silent awareness. And a big part of it is watching, listening, waiting, and then acting. Love it. There's a lot yeah, to learn from that, is isn't so there, much. really? It's so relevant now. So she wrote this book before COVID-19. Yes. And one of the things that's fascinated me about this pandemic, and there's been many, Mm. but is the fact that because there have been less people out in streets, less buses, streets with no cars, no car noise, a lot of people have taken recordings of parks and Mm. streets and there's been all sorts of projects. Being in trees, haven't they? Walking in trees. Yes, and commenting on how you can hear birds again and all the bird sound Mm. and the wind Mm. and all the noises Mm. in nature. I just love it. I 
I feel quite sad that that will come to an mm. end and we'll all go back to our yes. bustling noise and we'll forget. Yeah, I think I saw something about the different notes of the wind. Yes. Which, you know, I, I'm, yeah, that's I, passed me by. Yeah, so, I did not know there were yeah, different notes to the yeah. wind. Isn't that beautiful? Beautiful, just beautiful. Yeah. yeah. One level a little bit um, more lighthearted. I know it will resonate with you being a dog lover oh, as I me as well. This and this is the Lassie effect. And I loved this. And Julia's father in what she describes yeah. as a well-meaning act of grandfatherly generosity, <laughs> bought her children a puppy. <laughs> you just say, you know, single mum, full-time job, requires a lot of travel. Her mum was unwell and required care. She had two children, but, you know, <laughs> here it was, this tiny fluff ball of a grudel for her children, Charlie the puppy he was called. But she did seriously for a little while contemplate returning him I to know. the breeder because he was so much work. Anyway, she'd been told he was a medium size. I think she'd asked for a medium size dog. And she was assured, yes, he won't get much bigger. bigger. I know. <laughs> he just kept growing. He reached 30 kilos while he was still a puppy. He eventually grew to resemble a lion. And she knew that he wasn't a medium sized dog. She says he's been compared to a Yeti, a Shetland pony, Chewbacca, a polar bear. And a yak. And don't people stop her in they the park do. and say, tourists. what is that? But tourists actually take <laughs> selfies with him while she's out walking. It's just, you know, as if that dear woman <laughs> needed this dog. But then the oh, real point of the adorable. chapter. Yeah, he's just going to. The real point of the chapter is about the health benefits of owning a dog. And the evidence that's been gathered that they, you know, we don't need to be told this. No. We know they improve our health. But there's been studies in Sweden and Australia that have found dogs have lowered mortality and the risk of cardiovascular disease. And generally that people own pets have a significantly lower risk of becoming ill, especially men. And it's not just about walking your dog. They've discovered that it can't be explained away by other variables such as cigarette smoking or drinking and this has become known as this sort of Lassie effect. And it's a very short chapter, but it's got some really interesting other facts about pets. Apparently, Florence Nightingale had an owl. Yes. Charles Dickens had a raven. Yeah. And Lord Byron had a bear. So I loved I loved that. Yeah, I, know. I thought that was gorgeous. That was one of my favourite chapters, actually, particularly because Baloo is extremely heavy and powerful and I can't <laughs> walk him without being worried about him knocking me over. So I, I just loved but it. But we wouldn't be without them. No, we not wouldn't at all. Be without not at all. Them. Which book have you been reading this week, Ginny? I've been reading The Dictionary of Lost Words by Pip Williams. I think she was born in Britain, but she lives in South Australia. And she's written a memoir and various articles, but I think this is her first novel. And it's set against sort of two backgrounds. The first one is the creation of the Oxford English mm -hmm. Dictionary. That's the main background. And that is a dictionary that you probably know runs to now 20 volumes. Wow. And just as an aside, Lou, you might remember I recommended Room Rater to yes. you on Twitter. Yes. And that's the Twitter Loved account it. where people's Zoom backgrounds during yes. the pandemic have been rated and mm. you get more points if you've got a pot plant and less points if you've colour-coded yes. your books and that sort of thing. <laughs> 
And Kate Blanchett, the actress, has been interviewed on TV during lockdown. Yeah. And she has the Oxford English Dictionary on her shelves. All the volumes. Yes. Wow. You can see yes. them in there. So that's a spot you can go to. Because and look traditionally at them. most of us have the concise. So that is that is the twenty volumes. <laughs> She's got the twenty volumes there. Wow. They cost I think nine hundred and ninety five dollars. Mm. And you can now get them on a downloadable form. Oh, that wouldn't be much fun. No. No. What would be the point yeah. of having the 20 volumes in a downloadable form if you can't show them off uh, in yeah, a room right? Yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a pretty good boast to have, actually. Mm. And then the secondary background to the novel is the suffragette movement, which I mentioned mm. with the other book that we read. But back to this novel... So instead of writing about James Murray, who was the man who created the first edition of the dictionary, mm. Pip has imagined a story about some of the women who mm. were involved and specifically she's created a young girl named Esme who literally starts off sitting under the table while her father works on the dictionary. Mm. So her father is a fictional character and he's one of the several male lexicographers who work around a big table compiling all the mm. words and the definitions. So the book opens in 1886 with Esme and there's a very dramatic and defining moment in her life as she looks at some slips of paper with words on them. And then it continues on from 1887 onwards. And by that time, James Murray had been appointed the editor of the dictionary. And this was all started by the Unregistered Words Committee of the Philological Society of London, which wanted a new dictionary to succeed Samuel Johnson's, Johnson's dictionary yes. from 1755. And I was thinking about how fusty the name was, the Unregistered Words yes. Committee. Nowadays it would be something like Words Are Us or... <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I words or something, I don't know. Rather charming, really, in a way. So James Murray and his wife moved from London to Oxford and they built this huge garden shed in their mm. backyard and they called it the Scriptorium. And of course they did. Then James invited members of the public to send in slips of paper and they all had to be on a regular size, about the size of a postcard, mm. with a single word on it and then that, the person had to include a quotation containing that word. So the context of how you might use the word. Yeah. And then he built shelving in this scriptorium with hundreds of pigeonholes specifically sized to accommodate these slips of paper. And then at any one time, the men all worked on one letter of the alphabet. Oh, wow. I was going to ask you whether or not you were allocated a letter or... Well, they just started with A mm. and it took 70 years to complete the first edition. So it took five years to get from A to Ant. Wow. That gives you an idea. So that was the first edition was eight and they were published not in editions, they were called fascicles, mm. uh, which are installments. I think the lot, there were 125 fascicles in the end in the first print run. And so eight and was published in 1884. And for a word to go in the dictionary, it had to have been written down and it had to be traceable to a quote in literature or the press oh, okay. or some place that it could be traced to. So this was intended to be an exhaustive collection of all the words in the English language, which has the most words mm. of all languages, which is pretty, uh, you know, very ambitious undertaking because yeah. there are 171,000 words in the 
dictionary and there are 47,000 plus obsolete words. Wow. So that's just the background against mm. against which this story unfolds. So for anyone who loves words, mm. this book is quite a treat. But the story Pip's created is about the young girl named Esme who becomes fascinated with words and language because she spent so much time in the scriptorium mm. with her father. Her mother's died and she and her father are very close. And she becomes very friendly with one of the maids that works for James and Ada Murray. And they had lots of children, so it was a big, busy household. And it makes for quite an interesting and very poignant look at the differences in the two girls and the expectations for each of them coming from different classes Mm. and their education. Really quite um, sad in many respects. And then the book follows Esme as she grows up. She starts working in the scriptorium as an assistant and then she becomes involved in the suffragette movement, which was gathering momentum. Emmeline Pankhurst started the Women's Social and Political Union in 1903 Mm. and that union became more and more active until after the end of World War I and it was in 1918 that UK eventually passed legislation giving women over 30 and with property the right to vote and it wasn't until 1928 that all women over 21 were Mm. given the right to vote. And it's worth mentioning that South Australia gave all women the right to vote and stand for Parliament in 1894. Yes, yeah. Which is pretty fantastic. Mm. And the key thing about Esme, this this central character, is that she became fascinated with all the words that are not included in the dictionary, hence the the title. the, the obsolete. Yeah, well, not even obsolete. So the book's called The Dictionary of Lost Words and she started, this girl starts to notice that the men will only accept things that have been quoted in literature or poetry or or the press or other written documents. Even though there may be a word that's... That's used by the working class or in common usage. Yes. People in the markets and women have a lot of words that are not written anywhere. One of the words that was left out was a bond maid, Mm. um, which is a woman who is in service, and that sort of started her thinking about all the words about women. So it's quite a, it does have quite a feminist Mm. um, perspective. So this Esme then starts collecting these words in the same way. Mm. So she gets the same size pieces of paper and she writes her own quotes. And instead of the quote being from literature, she just writes Peggy from the market and and the sentence that they used the word Mm. in. And they're gorgeous words, some of them. And then there's a whole story that develops around those words. So it's gorgeous. And it's beautifully done. All the facts about the creation of the dictionary and the scriptorium are very deftly woven Mm. through the narrative. So it didn't feel at all didactic Mm. to me. It wasn't forced... I really loved it. I I won't elaborate on Esme's story other than to say she had a very interesting life with some highs and some lows. It's a very compelling story. I was completely invested in her life and the lives of the people around her. And it's just a wonderful book. I would highly recommend it. One of the things that really struck me about this book is that we're very aware that it's been 100 years since the 1919 flu pandemic Mm. and we're all very interested in the way that was managed or mismanaged and we're trying to learn from that and not repeat the mistakes of the past but of course none of us were alive Mm. then so it's been very difficult but what we've also had a hundred years ago was a growing movement for significant social change with the rise of women seeking the right to vote and 
to participate equally in mm. society. And whilst we, we have made a lot of progress in that, we've still got a long way to go. But it's interesting to me that we're now seeing a rise in the Black Lives Matter movement and a sense that a lot of people want there to be significant mm. social mm. change in that sphere, and it's interesting that that's also almost exactly yes, 100 that, years. that creates the conditions for yeah. unrest and questioning. Yeah, and I don't know quite what it is. So there are a lot of similarities between the events that occurred with the suffragettes and the people who are being active in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, the suffragettes were treated terribly. They went on hunger strikes. They were force-fed with hoses they were imprisoned, they were dismissed mm -hmm. by many men who wanted to preserve their male privilege. The women became very angry and resorted to violence and arson and property damage. Society became very divided over the issue mm. and it took sort of intense anger and dramatic conduct to convince people in power that this could not continue. And, and it's sort of all, all these things are the same. Yes. I mean, some of them are playing out in a different way with social media and so on, but... There are so many similarities and now we're seeing this all happen in respect of our treatment of people of colour and that everyone has to get really, really angry yes. and fed up for people to finally do something yes. about it. Yeah. I wish we didn't have to get so angry for there to be for change. For there to be change, yeah. So I don't know what it is about the 100 years but and the pairing of a terrible pandemic to a demand for social change, and I'm sure it's not a coincidence. I think there's yeah, that's right. I, I think it's about a resetting, but also maybe people feel they have a, a right to voice yep. things that are just under the surface. Yes, true. Well, actually, things that are in plain sight, to be honest. Yes, but just are not addressed. Yes, but haven't, yes. people haven't felt that they have had the platform, yeah, or the imprimatur to do it. Yes. Maybe there's a sense of, well, now while we're looking at other things in society... That you haven't managed well. Let's look at this issue as well. Yeah. yeah. It's fascinating. So, yeah, I would I would really recommend that book because it, it is... It does I'm really looking forward to reading that. quite a lot of thought. Yeah. What else have you been diving into? I have been diving into a podcast called Always Was, Always Will Be, mm. and it's a podcast by an Indigenous lady, Marley Silver. She's also got another podcast called Titus for Titus, and it's a brand-new podcast, so there's only two episodes mm. so far, but I've just loved both of them. So the first episode is an interview with Isaiah Dorr, and that episode's called Foster Kid to CEO. And it had the most profound effect on me. Isaiah is a, key, a young man who was in, he calls it out of home care mm. uh, in New South Wales for about 18 years. And he talks a bit about that experience and it, it's horrendous. And it's particularly horrendous when you hear him talk about the transition from when he turns 18 and the system says, well, now you're an adult, mm. you, we're not mm. going to look after you anymore. And him trying to sit his year 12 final school exams, chewing over the fact that he is going to be homeless he literally, when he finishes school, he, he was fortunate enough to win a scholarship to a, a lovely boys' boarding school, but he literally does not know where he's going That's to incredible. go once mm. the bell rings mm. at the end of the mm. day after his mm. final exam. I, you couldn't listen to it and not 
feel impacted by it. So really recommend that one. And then the second episode I listened to yesterday, and that's an interview with a lady, Tanika Davis, and she tells her story about she and her husband took their young one-year-old son to the paediatrician. There were a few issues. And he said, have you considered that he might have autism? And that moment where everything comes crashing down and she talks about what she and her husband have done since Mm. then and that's about three or four years ago very inspiring a really Mm. inspiring girl so I would really strongly recommend that Mm. podcast I listened to the first episode yesterday after you recommended it Virginia I haven't listened to the second one yet it's extraordinary Mm. story of Isaiah Dor. absolutely extraordinary I've always thought that foster care albeit not necessarily appropriate in individual circumstances, sometimes misplaced. I always assumed that foster carers were these extraordinary selfless people. His experience Mm. was just dreadful with clearly foster carers that just wanted money. He didn't even refer to them as foster carers. He just referred to them as carers, didn't he? Yeah. And some of them really just wanted the money. They wanted the money. And and he was locked out of the home. Yeah. Yeah. And he would prefer to be at school. Yes, that was his refuge. He didn't want the bell to ring. He didn't want school to end. And he loved it on days when there was after school sport because it prolonged having to go back to these houses. Yeah, just it's an extraordinary story, really. And and he has become very successful. Yeah, very inspiring the way he. He's developed this foundation to, and I think he said he's got 25 young adults who are coming out of the system and he mm. he's able to help them. I just thought that is so inspiring to use your own experience like that. And to, be, and help to be, other still be so positive I know. really about life so and have such humour. Generous and, and upbeat yeah. and yeah, warm. No, it's, very, it's, really, it's a great recommendation. I hope, yeah, yeah, loved it. What about you, Lou? What have you been diving into lately? I've recently read a memoir that I wanted to mention, another incredible story written by an African-Australian, Ewart Alak, and the memoir is titled Father of the Lost Boys. Ewart was born in South Sudan and the memoir is set against the backdrop of the Second Sudanese Civil War, Mm. which lasted from 1983 through to 2005. 22 years. It's hard to imagine. No, I didn't actually realise it was that Neither did I. I feel very ignorant Mm. reading this book. In the back of the book, for those of you who do want to educate yourselves more about Sudanese history, there's a potted but very comprehensive history about the region and the country that became the Sudan. It's got a very ancient history. You know, it had medieval Christian kingdoms from the 6th century and then Arabic and Islamic rulers from the 16th century. But in 1956, the British and Egypt granted independence to the Sudanese. And they basically told, off you go, live peacefully. But the north and south of the country didn't resemble each other at all. So the northern Sudanese were mostly Arab and Muslim and the southerners considered themselves first and foremost black Africans and they were Christian or animist. And that is the main source of the tension. So Ewart's family was from the south and his father was a community leader. He was an educated man. He had a mathematics and physics degree and he became head of maths at his former secondary school. And then he later became a headmaster. And then eventually he was appointed as head of educational planning for the entire southern Sudan region. Wow. 
Yeah. So his dream for the future of South Sudan was education. And he, yeah. he often said to his children that the pen was mightier than the sword. Oh. But then in 1983, the president of Sudan tore up the peace agreement between the North and the South and he announced the enforcement of Sharia law. So as an educated man and a community leader, Ewart's father had a target on his back. And this memoir is the story of how his father, who was clearly a very organised and strategic man, he devised a plan to take care of the young men who had become displaced from all the southern villages. Wow. There were 20,000 of these boys. Many uh, of them were orphans, weren't they? Yes. Or? Yeah, well, because mm. their parents had been killed yeah. or um, because all the villages were being ransacked. They're quite traumatised. And they became known as the lost boys of Sudan. And ultimately, he leads them out of Sudan to safety. And Ewart walked alongside his father for a good deal of that journey. And, of course, to both sides in a civil war, young men are a commodity. Yeah. You know, they're How not selfless to take all them with him. Extraordinary. And, you know, to simply say he walked them out of Sudan is to... It's extraordinary Because yeah, it would be so easy to just look after yeah. yourself and your family. Family, And, you know, across thousands and thousands of kilometres with lots of perils along the way. So did they actually walk? Yeah, they did. Wow. You know, the North wanted these boys dead and, of course, the South wanted them as an army of child soldiers. But, look, I, and I, I won't go into the details of the journey. You know, it's extraordinary. And it's a story we all need to know about. Yeah. And eventually... Ewart's father and mother brought their children to Australia. They were offered asylum. And I, I really hope this book encourages more Australians who are refugees to tell their stories. Yeah. We've got so much to learn from them, not not only about where they come from, but also their courage and their, their resilience, yeah. I think. So that's The Father of the Lost Gosh, Boys that sounds so good, Lou. by Ewart Alak, and it's published by Fremantle Press. And then apart from that, Ginny, I've, like you, I've been trying to make sense of the mm. recent events in America and the protests around the world, but also particularly in the context of Australia mm. and our own record. Yeah. And our record with Indigenous Australians is seriously wanting. Yeah. So I turn to Stan Grant this week. He's one of Australia's most successful journalists. He was a senior correspondent and a news anchor with CNN for years. He's from the Wiradjuri tribe and he's written a number of books about Aboriginal identity and dispossession and the suicide rate of Aboriginal Australians. So I've listened to a couple of podcasts that have episodes of interviewing Stan this week. Conversations with Richard Feidler has oh, had yeah. a couple of conversations oh, okay. with Stan. But one I particularly enjoyed was an interview he recorded a couple of years ago at the Auckland's Writers' Festival. And literally, if you Google Stan Grant Auckland Writers' Festival, it will come up. Okay. It was just after he'd written his book, Talking to My Country, and he talks a lot about those topics and it's a really good interview. Okay. Uh, well, what is great. sad is that I'm not sure a great deal has changed no. in the three years no. since he recorded it. No. So I can recommend that. Yeah, let's hope that recent events will change that. Yeah. And we'll probably talk about Stan a bit more yeah, in our we, next episode. I think we will because one of the books I've started is one of Stan's books. So thank you for joining Louise and me for this conversation. Do please tell a friend about our podcast as that helps us to expand our audience. So as I mentioned in the beginning, our next episode we'll be discussing some books that we've been reading to help us become better allies for people of colour and to better understand what they deal with on a daily basis. So that might be a hard conversation, but I am mm. looking forward to it. Mm. Me too. Yeah. Bye for now. Bye. Bye.
We really enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for listening and thank you for all your lovely reviews too. If you want to know more about today's books or anything else we've talked about, you'll find them in the show notes. And we feature most of the books on our Instagram page too at diving underscore in underscore podcast. And if you'd like to share any books that you've been diving into, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at hello at divinginpodcast.com. Bye for now. Breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving in. Breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving in. What else have you been diving into, Virginia? No, I haven't done my book yet. <laughs>